The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 3, Saturday, August 19th, 2023. Hey everyone, this is your host, Peter, with the seventh digest of this third volume, covering Monday, August 14th, through Friday, August 18th, 2023. Marvel Saga Monday, a follow-up. So I mentioned uh, at the end of doing all 25 issues of the Marvel Saga in uh, Volume 2 of the Digest that I had some holdovers that I wanted to talk about or other sagas that Marvel released that I eventually would try to get to, and that's what I'm doing here. I'm going to follow up Marvel Saga Monday, by taking a look at the Wolverine Saga. And I'm going to take a look at issue number one. This was a four-issue miniseries. It was released in May of 1989. It was prestige format, $3.95. Four issues. So I'm going to take I'm going to take a look at the first issue here, and then I'll decide, um, you know, maybe I'll go every month or every three weeks. I'll, I'll figure it out. So on your cover... To this issue, Rob Liefeld and Terry Austin give us Wolverine in a fur loincloth jumping towards us, jumping towards two people in a snowy forest. And then the back cover, you got images of, you know, more naked Logan. Wolverine versus the Hulk, of course. Logan smoking a cigar and standing with a redhead who was probably Jean Grey. Uh, And then you also have Wolverine being chained up. Book One Beginnings, this is written by Peter Sanderson, who did Marvel Saga, colored by Janet Jackson, no, not that Janet Jackson, editor Craig Anderson, who worked on the official Marvel Index to the Avengers, edited Savage Sword of Conan, The Conan Saga, Silver Surfer, What If Volume 2, Mark Runewald is your executive editor, and Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. So what did I think about this issue? I'll give you my general thoughts. It reads a little bit more like a novel or a thesis on Wolverine as opposed to what Sanderson did with the Marvel saga. There's a lot of description, there's a lot of words, and oftentimes in the captions and the narration, Sanderson repeats what we see in the dialogue in the panels. So I don't know, it's almost like he wrote it and then they decided to clip the art. So instead of letting the art tell the story, Sanderson is really digging into uh, prose um, or or his, you know, his captions, his narrations. They're not not even captions. They're full-on narrations. Uh, He likes to add in thoughts and comments um, from the characters in the artwork that is being shown. So he is expanding the scene beyond what the comic page or panel can show. And it's very similar to, you know, the idea behind the classic X-Men title. Let's tell stories in between the stories that you already know. And, you know, they use a lot of classic X-Men in this series. So that completely makes sense. Um, And then you have Sanderson connecting uh, Wolverine's life Um, you know, because it was told so out of order, you know, he was a blank slate when he first was created and then slowly throughout the seventies and eighties, he gets a little bit more backstory. So 
Sanderson can do the Marvel saga thing and say, okay, the reason why Wolverine acted this way during the giant size era X-Men is because of something that we learned from the 80s, you know? Um, I don't know if I learned a lot from this first issue, maybe because it is only 1989 when this came out and there wasn't a lot yet revealed about Wolverine. I mean, he was super popular, but we were only starting to get solo adventures and it would be years before we would really start to dig into a lot of his true origin stuff. So did I learn some stuff along the way? Sure, maybe, and I'll point them out. Um, but as a whole, uh, it's a different read than Marvel Saga. It, it has echoes and it resonates, but it's not quite the same. We get a narration, a little prologue blurb here uh, in the first couple pages where it says, Wolverine, a man of contradictions, superhero and outlaw, moral philosopher and psychotic, loner and family man, a protector of society who feels, feels ill at ease within it, a breaker of rules who binds himself to a code of honor, world-famous adventurer who hides behind a false identity, savage killer of criminals and kind friend to children, beast and man in one person. This is the story of this man of contradictions. This is the Wolverine Saga. I feel like this could be a celebration of his 15th anniversary. So he first appears in Incredible Hulk 180 in July of 1974, and here we are in 1989. And again, as I mentioned, he's super popular. He he has uh, you know his own miniseries in 1982 by Claremont, Miller, and Rubenstein. In 1984, we got the Kitty Pride and Wolverine six issue maxi series. In 1986, Spider Man versus Wolverine the one shot. July of 1988, that's when his series began, and his series is only up to issue 10 by the time they do this saga, and uh, eventually we'll get in November of 1988, or no, in November of 1988, we also got Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown, one of four. Uh, Uncanny X-Men is up to 248 by this point, the first issue of by Jim Lee, which is crazy. Um, so that kind of puts it all into context where we are. And then one of the other pages leading up to the actual content has a shot of Wolverine by Art Adams pulled from the cover to classic X-Men number one. Your stories in this issue are based on Alpha Flight 17 and 33, classic X-Men 1 through 10, giant size X-Men number one, of course, Incredible Hulk 181 and 182, Wolverine 9 and 10, and X-Men 94 through 101. Peter Sanderson then gives us an introduction, which is a follow-up to that paragraph that I read. And I'm going to read the whole thing here, um, because the other issues also have this intro, but most of this information gets repeated, and then they just drop in new info as we go, issue to issue. But I'll read the whole thing here, because I think it's kind of important. Of the many figures who have emerged in the history of the Marvel Universe, only a relative handful have proved themselves to be as complex or as intriguing as the man who calls himself Logan. But he is best known under the name of his costume identity, the Wolverine. For many years now, Wolverine has traveled over the globe battling the most formidable of adversaries. He has become a legend for his ferocity in combat 
and for the dreaded invincibility of his notorious claws. This series, The Wolverine Saga, is intended to is intended to explore who Wolverine is. But first, it is necessary to explain what he is, and this is by far the simpler of the two tasks. Although Wolverine first became a costume adventurer in Canada, he has come to prominence as a member of the American team of mutant superheroes known as the X-Men. Wolverine is himself a mutant, a person born with an unusual change in his genetic structure that makes him different from other human beings. He can see in the dark better than an ordinary man, his hearing is extraordinarily acute, and he can identify and trail a person by his scent as a bloodhound bloodhound can. Even more impressive, his mutations include a healing factor of superhuman speed and efficiency. Wolverine has suffered injuries that would kill any normal man instantly, but in each case he has survived. It is this healing factor that made possible the operations that gave him his greatest weapons. Molecules of adamantium, a virtually indestructible form of steel, were bonded to his skeleton, rendering it nearly unbreakable and he was given his retractable adamantium claws. Normally, the claws remain hidden within his forearms, but at his mental command, they will shoot forth, emerging from the back of his hands. Harder than diamond and extraordinarily sharp, Wolverine's claws can tear through practically anything. They are among the deadliest weapons on Earth. There is one more element to Wolverine's near invincibility. His name, Wolverine, is indeed apt, because throughout his life there have been two sides to his personality, the thinking man and the savage beast. There are times when he is sufficiently provoked that the beast takes over, launching into a berserker rage in which Wolverine is almost unstoppable. Not without reason, Wolverine has been turned a psychotic. But Wolverine can also be perfectly sane, for he has struggled over the years to master the beast within himself. He has adapted the way of the Japanese samurai as a mode of self-discipline. Though Wolverine will not hesitate to kill when he feels, feels it is necessary, he does not tolerate outright gratuitous murder. He has a code of ethics, which may not be the same moral code as civilized society in all respects, but it is a moral code nonetheless. Wolverine is a man about whom we know an extraordinary amount, but at the same time we know virtually nothing about him. This series, The Wolverine Saga, aims to explore that history and those contradictions. Peter Sanderson. That's a lot of explanation for a, a character that, as I mentioned before, we have yet to dip into his origins yet, right? We're not even into Weapon X yet by Barry Windsor Smith. That doesn't begin until 1991 in Marvel Comics Presents 72. That's still almost two years away. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, okay, what's Peter San Sanderson, what's Peter Sanderson going to do, right? And uh, as I talked about before, he, he does what he did with the Marvel Saga. So uh, let me go through the pages. Um, I don't think I'm going to hit a lot of these notes because... This is probably all stuff you already know. I'll try to touch on the things that I found interesting, the connections that maybe Sanderson made. Um, we start off on page one with more information from Sanderson, building up to the opening sequences, you know, things about questions of his origin, his birth, his name, his age. Uh, Sanderson detailing, I guess at this point, the earliest incident in his life 
involving Sabretooth, and this was before he received his adamantium. And because we are well before Fatal Attractions, apparently, you know, Sanderson has to say not only is this before his adamantium, it's before his claws, right? Because in comic book lore, we have yet to get the revelation that Wolverine had bone claws. So pages one through six is from Wolverine 10, sparked by the death of Silver Fox. We get a confrontation between a young Wolverine, no claws, no real battle skills. He's clumsy against Sabretooth, who is the better combatant as this at this point. And Sabretooth uh, is the victor for this round. No pun intended. Um, pages seven through nine is an exploration of adamantium both within the Marvel Universe and and how it could possibly be bonded to Wolverine, which is still unknown as of 1989. So we get Myron McClane, who invented adamantium in the 40s, the idea that there was an unknown factor that entered into the alloy that made it so strong. Eventually, those secrets got to Lord Darkwind, who was a scientist and the father to Lady Deathstrike, The saga even speculates that Logan's adamantium skeleton might have been developed from information that was stolen from Darkwind. We even mentioned that Bullseye has adamantium on his bones. And then they talk about how James McDonald Hudson of Alpha Flight, um, how he possibly could have been behind the experiments. And that leads us to pages 10 through 12, where we get the first meeting between James and Logan and Heather But Sanderson speculates, and maybe it's in the comics, I don't know, that, um, so they meet Wolverine in the wilds of a snowy Canadian forest or woods, but, and it's supposed to be by accident, um, but did James know that Logan was out there? Maybe James knew about the experiments with Darkwind, maybe he was in on it, maybe Canada was in on it, and they, and it wasn't just a random um, trip through the woods. Cause I think it was supposed to be James and Heather going on their honeymoon, right? But who goes into the snowy woods? So, uh, yeah, so that was interesting. I don't think I've ever thought of that before. And I love that Sanderson is continuing to say how James, uh, was inspired by the debut of the Fantastic Four. And that's why he wanted to create his own devices that would eventually lead to Alpha Flight and Guardian so that James is actually on like Reed Richards level, Uh, you know, in terms of age. Pages 12 through 15, this is where Logan, because of meeting James and Heather, he starts working with the Canadian government. They send him to the Pacific Rim of Asia. He meets Ogun, the big bad of the Kitty Pride and Wolverine maxi series, and that's where he learned how to fight. He learned other skills. Possibly this is where he learned uh, the ways of the samurai, and this is where a lot of his... uh, code comes from. He meets Carol Danvers before she becomes Ms. Marvel. And eventually, because Canada wants to create superheroes of their own, they decide, okay, we're going to create Alpha Flight and they want Logan to be its leader. So they invest all this money in him to try to suppress his animalistic side. They want him to be a leader for this new public superhero team, but they can't have him be you know, psychotic and crazy and go berserker on people, right? This leads us to pages 16 through 20, which is Wolverine's first, uh, quote-unquote, first public appearance, 
during Incredible Hulk 180 through 182, fighting the Hulk, fighting Wendigo. This is all classic Marvel stuff here, right? Sanderson pointing out that um, the Hulk is probably not invulnerable to the adamantium claws. It's just that Logan probably lacks, lacks the super strength to drive them through Hulk's hide. There's a funny panel that they, they clip out here from one of the issues. Um, it's on page six, 17 of the saga, where Logan talks about how he has to keep moving from being hit for, uh, by the Hulk. And he says, because moving is the thing I do best. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, that's a fi- far cry from uh, I'm the best there is at what I do, but what I do best isn't very nice, you know, which is a slogan he'll pick up later. Pages 20 through 23, this is where we get into X-Men territory. Uh, Sanderson, you know, filling us in on Professor X and the school and the original five X-Men. And then, you know, using a lot of classic X-Men stuff to dive into the reasons behind why Xavier felt like he had to create a secondary team just in case the first team uh, might have had something bad happen to them. And that's where we get giant-sized X-Men fighting Krakoa uh, and Professor X recruiting these new members, one of them being Wolverine because Professor X heard about the battle with the Hulk. And by this point, Logan is all too happy to get out from under Canadian control. Uh, We get, uh, you know, dialogue and and clip art straight out of Giant Size X-Men, which I'm reading uh, that era throughout the many Daily Reads segments that I do on Thursdays every now and then. So there's a lot of repeating going on. There was stuff in here. I was like, okay, uh, yeah, I know this. Page 24 goes into a little more detail as to maybe why Logan accepted Xavier's request so easily, suggesting, because again, Sanderson can pull from 15 years of stories, um, that maybe Logan wanted to leave Canada uh, because he had the hots for Heather, for James's wife, and he knew it wasn't going to be reciprocated. So um, Sanderson says here, with how hard his feelings were for Heather and then for Jean Grey, that Logan was then a man unused to love, perhaps even a man who had long been incapable of such an emotion. There is no sign in, in his early experiences with the X-Men that Logan was a man trying to get o- over an unrequited love for Heather. I mean, I don't know if I... I, I like the supposition... I like the, what he's trying to suggest, you know, adding a layer of information to him leaving Canada for the X-Men, along with what we learned during Alpha Flight and later. Um, But, I mean, he has a history of a bunch of dead girlfriends. So this whole thing about, does he know about love? I don't know. Maybe by 1989, we didn't get a lot of those stories just yet. Maybe because it was constantly him and Jean Grey. um, But we wouldn't really get other... And also uh, Mariko, right? We have to remember her. So, um, but that's... That's within X-Men continuity, not prior to X-Men. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that, but I I see Sanderson's point. Pages 25 through 28, this is basically Wolverine in the X-Men team talking about how there might have been a little bit of a rivalry between Thunderbird and Wolverine because they were similar in nature, hot-tempered, rebellious. And Sanderson surmising 
again, this is probably from classic X-Men, that Thunderbird's nature might come from the realization that he feels Wolverine was more experienced and skilled. So Proudstar was pushing himself to be better, and that's where his aggression came from. We dip into the Logan and Jean relationship quite early, with Sanderson commenting, Wolverine once again began to fall in love with a woman who would never requite his passion. Which, you know, maybe as, ni- as far as 1989, sure, I guess she wasn't really, you know, into Wolverine as much. She, she liked him, but did they have their first kiss yet? I think so, maybe. Um, Sanderson mentions that Jean is attracted to him, but, you know, we know their eventual history. This leads to an early confrontation with Angel trying to defend Jean's honor and Wolverine opening up to Jean about his berserker side. Again, this is classic X-Men building on the moments in between a lot of those original Claremont stories, especially if you consider that the original X-Men publication run was bi-monthly, and they oftentimes would skip several days or weeks between issues. So I could understand why they would want classic X-Men to tell stories between the big stories. Pages 28 through 36, we get uh, a whole bunch of different events. Another battle with Sabretooth, um, Wolverine's role with the new X-Men, the death of Thunderbird, Wolverine going berserk on Nightcrawler during a training session, killing Kirok the Nagari demon, um, you know, helping Nightcrawler to do away with his image inducer, uh, Sanderson pointing out that the attack on the Nagari demon was a way to connect back to Logan's days with the Canadian government and how, you know, they were pissed that he left because they funneled a lot of money into him. And he says during, um, that story in classic X or in the giant size era run where he's like 10 years of psycho training of hypnotism, of drug therapy, 10 years of praying, and I cut him to pieces without a thought. Nothing changes. I thought I'd learned to control myself. I guess I was wrong. And you want to know something funny? I'm glad. So when you look at this in the larger narrative of the, of the Wolverine saga, you can see where uh, this Berserker Rage thing, it, it ebbs and flows as it goes, which is kind of cool. And then pages 36 through 42... We get Wolverine confronting Cyclops, especially during the first Emperor Deken battle. Uh, how Logan learns to respect Storm. Dr. Lang's sentinel attack on the X-Men, leading to the birth of the Phoenix. This is the story where the other X-Men learn that Logan's claws are part of him, not just on his costume. Which, if if I'm remembering... Even the creators weren't so sure initially, and you know, were they part of his costume? And then eventually they made it part of his body. And it ends with Logan and Jean arguing about her decision to pilot the space shuttle back to Earth through deadly radiation. Sanderson suggesting that Jean may be the woman he loved more than any other in his life. And that's where we leave this first issue. It ends with the next issue blurb. Uh, where we're going to go up to uh, his time with Mariko and his battle with her father. So there you go, Wolverine Saga number one. As I mentioned, not a lot that I was able to connect 
especially because we're focusing on one character. Um, but I'm still curious to see where rest of uh, where the rest of the issues go. It is not a quick read, so if you ever pick up these issues, you know, don't think you're going to finish it in five minutes. You're not. Before I go, I have two other titles that I want to comment on um, because they have a Marvel Saga connection in a way. I'm not going to go super in-depth here. So starting off with Fantastic Four 300 from December of 1986 by Roger Stern, John, and Sal Buscema, with a special thanks to Peter Sanderson. Now, Marvel Saga was up to issue 16 when Fantastic Four 300 hit. This is the wedding of Johnny Storm and Alicia Masters. And you have Alicia's father, the puppet master, determined to keep the marriage from happening. And then along the way, here comes the Mad Thinker and the Wizard, who also want vengeance on Johnny Storm for all of the early defeats uh, you know, in classic Marvel Age comics. And I, I have to imagine this is where Peter Sanderson comes into play because no doubt um, what he was covering during all of the Human Torch's solo adventures in Strange Tales, that's where you get information here within Fantastic Four 300. So you get the villains commenting and remembering about early defeats whenever they went up against Human Torch in all of those solo stories. So I could, whether they used the Marvel saga or they used Sanderson's notes, um, you know, I'm assuming they had access to those original comic comics, but maybe they were just like, oh, I just want to give me the cliff cliff notes. Give me the Sanderson notes about what I need to do to talk about the history between the villains and the Human Torch. So I thought that was kind of cool. And then the other issue is Incredible Hulk 393 from March 1992 in celebration of Hulk's 30th anniversary. A really fun issue um, that has a bunch of pinups and stories by Peter David and other people uh, with really great artwork. Um, yeah, it's it's really, really a, a good issue. And then they have what's called The Psychological Ramifications of Gamma Radiation, a case history on the various transformations of the Hulk written by Dr. Leonard Sampson, actually written by writer Chris Cooper. Um, but it's a really great linear retelling of Bruce Banner's life and the causes and everything that led up to becoming the Hulk and all the different variations of the Hulk. And it's told in a Marvel Saga style. So you got narration against clip art and it's quite wonderful. It, it really is wonderful. It's smart. Uh, I think it's better than the Wolverine saga and how it's laid out. Because it's not just a tour through the history, connecting dots in a, in a little bit of a dry, methodical way. Because it's written by Leonard Sampson, it has this other layer to it. The psychological aspect, speculating about why there are the many different versions of the Hulk... And it's all based on, you know, Peter David's foundation of all the psych psychological trauma Banner had and anything that came before Peter David. Um, so it's not necessarily, I mean, yes, it's going through specific issues and you can see the artwork 
from, you know, like Hulk 300 or during the burn run or prior to that, you know, it's, it's got all of those elements, you know, a lot of stuff from Peter David's run. It's really good. It's, I, I quite enjoyed those few pages. So if you have this issue, you should check it out. Um, or maybe it's on the, uh, the Marvel app. I'm not sure. One of the big points that I took away is right in the beginning where, um, they mentioned that Bruce's dad worked at Los Alamos before Bruce was born, which I was like, okay, wait a minute. Is he a contemporary? Is Bruce's dad a contemporary for Charles Xavier's dad and also Charles Xavier's stepdad, the the father of Juggernaut? You know, that would be quite amazing and, um, you know, maybe a little too coincidental, but because of what Peter David I'm assuming it's Peter David, what he built, this this whole notion of Banner as a young kid and his father doing experiments, etc. That's quite fascinating. I love that. And then it's also mentioned that Bruce was born during the advent of mutant hysteria in Ohio. Not quite sure what they're trying to connect there, but I like that. Um, and because of the way that they talk about all of the various bombardments of radiation that the Hulk gets... That's why everything is cumulative and, you know, it supports my notion that, you know, the Hulk has gone through many, 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 many uh, transformations because of it. And that's what they're saying here. And that's what stories have said over the years. So it all just makes sense. And it makes all those years of Hulk stories uh, really just more interesting to read when you think of it in that light. What other things do you get? You get... um, Bruce in college, where he met Walter Langowski, uh, who was Sasquatch from um, Alpha Flight. Uh, you get all the various different colors of the Hulk. You get the origin of the leader, um, how he, how the Hulk went through all those changes in the beginning, whether it was he changed into the Hulk because it was nighttime or daytime or he could do it mentally, or at somebody else's suggestion. You get Hulk's first battle with Doc Samson, the Savage Hulk from issue 299 and 300, or, you know, the Hulk getting separated more than once, or when it happened at Bruce and Betty's wedding in Hulk 319. Um, the struggles that all these various versions of Hulk had uh, within the Hulk, and then suddenly we got, like, Joe Fix-It, and we got... Uh, a new Hulk in Hulk 377, which was like, a, I guess, a combination of everything, you know. There's this great part where they get really deep into the psychology and they talk about how these various versions of the early Hulk are all manifestations of the superego, the ego, and the id. So Banner is the superego, the Grey Hulk is the ego, and the Green Hulk, because it's quite childlike, is the id. And then they give them all names. Banner is Glow, Grey Hulk is Goblin, and Green Hulk is Guardian. I love that. I, I remember reading that when I first got this issue, and even to this day, I still enjoy it. So check that out. Check out Fantastic Four 300, and check out Incredible Hulk 393. Just some more follow-ups to Marvel Saga. Deep in December our hearts should remember and follow 
In recent musical theater news, American lyricist, librettist, author Thomas Collins Jones, known as Tom Jones, died on August 11th at the age of 95. Tom Jones was the longtime partner of composer Harvey Schmidt, and the two would go on to create the longest-running musical known as The Fantastics, which ran from 1960 until 2002 for 42 years, and there has since been revivals. The show Fantastics is played regularly in regional theater, community theater, school productions, amateur productions. The other works by the pair include I Do, I Do, Celebration, some obscure musicals such as Colette, Philemon, uh, but they are probably best known for the Fantastics as well as 110 in the Shade, which has a book by N. Richard Nash. Harvey Schmidt had passed away in 2018. So normally, with musical theater creators uh, or performers that have passed, I like to play snippets of songs in their memory. But since Jones was a lyricist, I decided to find clips that showcase the very poetic language that you can often find in his works. His characters often use dialogue that is highly descriptive, that is lifted beyond regular speech. It can be quite beautiful, it can be quite haunting. So I felt this was a good way to remember the work, the career, the life of Tom Jones. So what you're going to hear is a string of selections from various musicals, starting with the 1960 Fantastics, two monologues from that musical. From 1963, Simple Little Things, uh, just a, a beautiful song from 110 in the Shade. Uh, from I Do, I Do, the song Nobody's Perfect from 1966. From 1969, the finale of Celebration. From 1970, The Room is Full of You from Colette. From 1973, Sometimes There Must Be More Than This from Philemon. From 2001, Born from Roadside. And then I'm going to end it with the Fantastics again, the Glenn speech as delivered by Jerry Orbach, which I've played many years ago on the Daily Rios for a Monday Musings. So enjoy. I'm 16 years old, and every day something happens to me. Oh. 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 I hug myself till my arms turn blue, and then I close my eyes and I cry and cry till the tears come down and I can taste them. I love to taste my tears. I am special. I am special. Please, God, please, don't let me be normal. I'd like to swim in a clear blue stream where the water is icy cold. Then go to town in a golden gown and have my fortune told. There is this girl. She makes me young again. And foolish. And with her I perform the impossible. I defy biology and achieve ignorance. There are no other ears but hers to hear the explosion of my soul. 
There are no other eyes but hers to make me wise. And despite what they say of species, there is not one plant or animal or any living thing that is made quite the same as she is. It's stupid, of course, I know it, and immensely undignified. But I do love her. So that's my situation in a nutshell. I've gone mad. And the reason, if you ask me, is because there is this girl. Simple little things, all I want are simple little things, all I need is someone beside me to have and to hold, someone to love me as we of paper. This is a column which, as you see, I have placed on the piece of paper. This is a list of receipts and bills, what we might call household expense, which I have entered along this line, forming a business-like design inside the column which I've prepared upon this piece of paper. This is a total of all those bills. It represents a month's expense. The whole outlay in checks and cash that went for the rent and the corned beef hash. In short, the sum and net result of all the figures inside the column which I've prepared upon this piece of paper. What's out there? Outside the garden? The world. The real world. It's dark, isn't it? Are you afraid? Yes. So am I. In this time of cold and darkness, in this terrifying night, in this seemingly endless winter, let us pray that they'll be all right. Some people say that today is the day when the cold will come and never go away. When the bird will fly, the wind will blow. But something deep inside me says it can't be so. I want to celebrate. Sometimes I'm touched by the strangest thing. Some simple song that you used to sing. Some Funny thing when you say no. Uh, you don't always mean to say it. Uh, sometimes it just comes out. You see trouble up the street, for example. You avoid it. You cross over to the other side. And you think, I'm a simple person. 
I can't change the world. And then one day, a, a day that seems like any other day, you see a hurt dog running down the street and you help it. You can't help but help it. Or perhaps, if not a dog, a child. A child that's been stabbed by a soldier. Or if not a child, an old person, a Jew. Or if not a Jew, a Christian, someone. On a day that seems like any other day, uh, you find yourself on a corner in the sunlight saying, no, you can't do this. This is not what human beings do. And in spite of all the inevitable consequences, something inside of you makes you say no. No. Way out on a Texas prairie, just this side of the tall mountains, lived a gal by the name of Eliza. Morning come, she'd hop on her pony to go ride the range. Her old pappy and mammy are running after her to stop her. And away she'd go, like a streak of lightning, like dynamite on wings. Her pony stretched out, like a bolt of lightning, like a tentpole headed west. She's about seven and a half mile away. She'd stop and look around. Now, a funny thing. She had rid into a valley where a river used to flow way back in the year number one. The tall grasses stood up like trees. And there's a queer kind of a roaring like lions or tigers coming from somewheres in that grass. Now, she'd get off her pony and look around, and then she'd go into that valley on foot. She'd stay all day, sometimes she'd stay all night. You wonder how these things begin. Well, this begins with a glen. It begins with a season which for want of a better word, we might as well call September. It begins with a forest where the woodchucks woo and leaves wax green and vines entwine like lovers. Try to see it, not with your eyes, for they are wise, but see it with your ears, the cool green breathing of the leaves, and hear it with the inside of your hand, the soundless sound of shadows flicking light. Celebrate sensation. Recall that secret place. You've been there, you remember. That special place where once, just once in your crowded, sunlit lifetime, you hid away in shadows from the tyranny of time. That spot beside the clover where someone's hand held your hand. And love was sweeter than the berries or the honey or the stinging taste of mint. It is September before a rainfall, a perfect time to be in love. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday for the week of August 16th. Before I give my recommendations, I was going to go through my latest DCBS shipment, 
These books uh, were released at the end of July through mid-August, um, but there's not much to talk about, actually. Most of the titles are already in progress as I was flipping through, you know, it's like the fifth issue of JSA, an issue of World's Finest, Danger Street number eight, uh, a back issue magazine, um, World's Finest Teen Titans, which I'm going to talk about uh, a little bit more in the Friday segment, Tales of the Teen Titans, and yes, I even got a few Night Terrors books, which I didn't think I was going to do. But they all focus on the Titans, right? Ravager, Nightwing, Titans, you know, of course I had to get those. Um, these are all titles that I'm looking forward to, but again, they're they're in their mid-numbering, right? Like, uh, I don't think I got any issue number one, um, no collections, so there was nothing to talk about, right? So that's kind of, it's not disappointing. I'm always glad when I get a DCBS shipment, it's like Christmas every month, um, but you know, some shipments are just your average run-of-the-mill books that you would pull off the shelf. So, all right, let's go into our recommendations for the week of August 16th, starting with Titan Comics, In Search of Gil Scott Heron, hardcover, Thomas Mossery, Seb Biquette, Discover the Godfather of Rap. Singer, poet, and writer, considered to be the godfather of rap, Gil Scott Heron is a myth and legend in the Afro-American music scene. Through his personal experiences, the writer discovers the life of this genius alongside the complex past and present of the America that Scott Heron lived in, celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip-hop for $29.99. From Magnetic Press, First Adventure of Sherlock Holmes, a study in Scarlet hardcover by Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, and Vincent Malie. This is $24.99. This is a brand new edition of the first Sherlock Holmes novel, capturing the joyful style of an animated feature as if created by renowned director Miyazaki. London, 1878. Poor Dr. Watson returns from India completely penniless and on the verge of despair when he meets Sherlock Holmes, a whimsical guy who also happens to be looking for a roommate. The pair move into 221 Baker Street when one of the Scotland Yard's top sleuths enlists the talented detective to help solve a dark murder case. Together, Watson and Holmes will lead the investigation and cement a partnership that will last for years to come. And yes, the artwork is quite beautiful on that. From Marvel... Alpha Flight, number one of five, which is part of the Fall of X event by Ed Brisson, Scott Godlewski, Leonard Kirk on covers, Saving Canada from the Mutant Menace, Guardian, Puck, Snowbird, and Shaman return as a terrestrial Alpha Flight bursts onto the scene. $3.99. But what schism will pit the, these heroes against their former teammates, Aurora, Northstar, and Nemesis, as well as Aurora's boyfriend, Fang. Will Alpha Flight soar to new heights or be crushed under the weight of an impossible mission? Always like when a new Alpha Flight title starts, whether it's good or bad. It's one of those franchises that's like a guilty pleasure over at Marvel. I like that they use the word terrestrial because I guess at one point Alpha Flight was out, out in space, right? Was it part of S.W.O.R.D.? I don't, I don't remember. Um, all right, there you go. Those are your rec recommendations for this week. Before we go, 
let's dig into the uh, Who Are the Gods One Sheet from this week. We got one by Jonathan Hickman and the creators, the artists of um, Uncanny Avengers number one, which is also part of Fall of X. Um, that issue is written by Jared Dugan. The art is by, let's see, Javier Garon. And Jonathan Hickman obviously writes these one sheets. Um, I didn't really look through the Uncanny Avengers book itself. Um, apparently, they're going up against Captain Krakoa, whoever that is. Um, at this point, you know, it's someone else under the mask this time. Um, but the God sh- the God's one sheet was quite fascinating this week. We start in the House of Ranks and Numbers, home of the Centum. And it looks like a futuristic version of Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water. So we got two people examining and dissecting uh, the brain of a body, while a third person, known as 97, is watching on. They say that the body is multiversal, possibly a refugee, long-lived, where the biology suggests an evolution parallel to this universe's Eternals. And it is also a carrier of a tesseract, or a cosmic cube. And apparently this has been going on for a while. Someone is smuggling tesseracts to this Earth, I guess, to this universe. Now, that line about parallel to the Eternals, I freaking love that. When you look at the design of the body on the table, it looks, and I'm guessing Hickman is suggesting, that it's a new god. It's a new god from DC's universe, right? Because they said it's multiversal. The design is incredibly Kirby. It's design being similar to the Eternals, you know, obviously because Kirby created both. It's so wonderful. Uh, it's so wonderfully meta and it's a perfect description. You know, so you got the new gods beginning in 1970. You got the Eternals in 1976. You got this body um, that feels like it's pulled from Kirby's original sketches in the 60s for the new gods, right? Their, their proto looks, the the ones that were far more designy than what he actually put to the page. There was even a portfolio called Gods um, that he created like a whole bunch of redesigns for the Norse gods. I mean, that's what that body looks like. And then they're saying, oh, you know, it feels like they evolved similar to the Eternals. Well, that's the new gods. That's the new gods. It's amazing. And then they pull this tesseract from the being's brain because that's where it was smuggled. Yikes. Um, 97 tells them to check the resonance, which I imagine probably connects it to whatever multiverse or universe it came from. So this one sheet, lots of interesting concepts, really enjoyed this. Um, we have a bunch more to go throughout August, but this is probably one of my favorites so far. And then God's Will premiere in October. So I will continue this look as we get them throughout, uh, you know, future Wednesdays. Vibology Part 3. This is an infrequent segment spotlighting comics and Latin characters, creators, culture, etc. that make up those comics. 
Today, I'm cementing a thought that I've had for quite a while concerning how the backbone of mainstream comic book art, meaning DC and Marvel, and specifically DC over Marvel, how that backbone is Latin. Latin, Hispanic, South American, Mexican, Spanish. It is entirely composed, comprised of uh, creators within that demographic. And there really is no question to this. So when it comes to pencilers and cover artists and inkers, mainstream comics, I'm talking DC and Marvel again, but specifically more DC than Marvel, they are filling up your collections and your comic reading with people like me. Um, This all came to a head going through this month's previews, the August previews for October Comics, which I already talked about on a previous Wednesday segment. Um, I kept seeing names on all levels of comics from major titles to one-offs, you know, names of creators who are clearly from a certain ethnicity, demographic, whatever culture, whatever it is, um, and specifically people who do not live in this country. And I fully realize that this is probably something most people don't even think about, right? You, you, you know the creators, but you don't necessarily know or care where they come from. Um, dedicated Wednesday warriors who don't follow comic book news, who are not on Twitter, who don't pick up previews. They just go to the shop, they grab their favorite title, their favorite character, brand, creator. They read it, they go on their merry way, and that's it. Totally fine. But I'm not like that, and I've never been like that. And if you are someone who listens to a bunch of podcasts, you're probably, probably not like that either. Um, because as Neil Gaiman has said often in the past, names have power. And for me, when I was a young Puerto Rican kid reading comics, a kid that, you know, honestly, uh, truthfully was barely involved in my own culture, mind you, you know, my family was, but it, it wasn't like traditional. We had the culture, but we weren't steeped in it. You know, when I was reading comics as a kid, certain names had power. Certain names meant something, right? You've heard these names a lot if you've listened to me over the years. George Perez, Ernie Colon, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Esteban Moroto. You know, I I wasn't reading um, the Hernandez brothers, but I certainly knew who they were and saw their names on ads. Uh, and then there are so, so, so many more throughout the years, probably people that I didn't even know of back then, you know? So as I go through this August DC previews to back all this up, you're going to see how, again, the the majority of the comic book art, it is, it is completely, as I said, you know, Spanish, Hispanic, Mexican, South American, Latin American, Central American. I mean, it's just amazing. So I apologize ahead of time for incorrect, incorrect pronunciations or birthplaces, but here is the list. When we got the big news out of San Diego that there was going to be a Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong comic, super high profile, really big news. People were excited. Your penciler on issue number one, at least is Christian Ducey from Uruguay. 
And on the cover to the previews promoting the miniseries, the alternate cover that they're using for that series is by Dan Mora, who comes from Costa Rica. Uh, Dan Mora, who is tearing it up on Batman Superman World's Finest, Shazam, you know, World's Finest, arguably DC's top book right now, other than like Nightwing. Um, it's Dan Mora. And by the way, Dan Mora's full name is Dan Mora Chavez. Have you been reading Sadarsky's run on Batman? Batman, again, arguably DC's constant main seller with art by Jorge Jimenez from Spain and who has been on the book on and off since 2020 with James Tinian as well. You also have Mike Hawthorne, who is an American-born Puerto Rican, who is also doing work on the Batman title as well as art for the first chapter of Batman Catwoman Gotham War. And then um, doing work in this preview's uh, Brave and the Bold, you have uh, Guillaume March, who is writing and drawing, again, from Spain, and another story in that book with art by Jorge Molina from Mexico. Again, I'm just talking about pencilers. I'm not, you know, if I dig into inkers and colorists and, and others, like it, it, the list probably could grow and grow and grow. All right, what about Action Comics for Dawn of DC by Philip Kennedy Johnson with art from Rafa Sandoval from Spain? And then if you go to another member of the Trinity, we got Batman, we got Superman, about ready to break through Tom King's Wonder Woman run with Dark Crisis artist Danielle Semper, again from Spain, from Barcelona. That's three Trinity books, all with art out of Spain. Not to mention... Uh, working with King on the Penguin is Rafael de, de la Torre from Brazil. And working with King on Danger Street is Jorge Fornes from Spain. Then we got another big push from DC uh, alongside Wonder Woman. So you got Flash coming out soon with Cy Spurrier and Brazilian comic book artist Deodato Tamaturgo Borges Filho also known as Mike Diodato Jr. I know I butchered that name. Doing comics at 60 years old. Another A-list title for DC, Nightwing, Tom Taylor, and the always amazing Bruno Redondo, again from Spain. Let's keep going through the Justice League, or DC's A-list characters. The New Green Lantern for Dawn of DC, written by Jeremy Adams, with art by Hermanico, whose given name is Alejandro Hermanico Bennett as well as the current backup in the title for this uh, August previews by David LaFuente, both from Spain. Batman, Action Comics, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Nightwing, all with influence in comic book art from Spain. That is huge. That's huge. Another title that DC is banking on, the upcoming Birds of Prey book by Kelly Thompson with Brazilian artist Leonardo Romero, we got some Justice League adjacent books like Green Lantern War Journal, again by Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Montos, given name Osvaldo Pestano Montpelier from Cuba. And it's funny because Montos drew the first and I guess the only issue of Entropy, which came out from Heavy Metal, uh, written by Christopher Priest, which I did a review of, talked about it, I liked it. And I remember saying that Montos's art and the character felt like a Green Lantern character, and now here he is drawing uh, Green Lantern. We got the Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom special movie one-shot, 
cover by Ivan Hayes from Brazil, another huge veteran at this point, working in comics since the mid-90s. Uh, Ivan Hayes blew up during all the lead-up to Infinite Crisis, drawing Ranthanagar War, drawing pages of Infinite Crisis, taking over Green Lantern from Carlos Pacheco, again, who was from, who was from Spain, uh, Ivan Hayes making magic on Blackest Night, eventually helping to propel the New 52 Aquaman series with Jeff Johns, create and continuing to be amazing to this day. Like, really one of my favorite artists, current artists of, uh, you know, the current crop. Speaking of movies, the new Blue Beetle series in this August previews by writer Josh Truillo, who is a Mexican-American, and Adrian Gutierrez from Spain. What about the JSA? The main Justice Society of America book with Jeff Johns and Mikhail Hanin from, you guessed it, Spain. The new Jay Garrick, The Flash miniseries, written by Jeremy Adams, with art by Diego Olotego from Peru. And Power Girl, with art by Eduardo Pansica from Brazil. And then you got things like Poison Ivy uh, with art by Marcio Takara from Brazil, Waller vs. Wildstorm, art by Jesus Marino from Spain. And then you just have artists doing covers or variants like uh, uh, Julian Totino Tedesco from Argentina, Yasmin Flores Montanez from Puerto Rico, Sergio Acuna from Costa Rica, Ricardo Lopez Ortiz, who was born in Puerto Rico, Luciano Vecchio from Argentina, Belen Ortega from Spain, and probably so, so many more. This is what I mean when I say DC Comics, the backbone of comic book art, is, um, is, is, is exactly what I said. Spanish, South American, Central American, Latin American, Mexican... American has Hispanics or Latin people. And then for Marvel, um, you know, there's there's not quite as many, but there are certainly some. In fact, I think Marvel pulls a lot from Italy as well. Um, but you have people like Martin Coccolo from Uruguay doing Immortal Thor with Al Ewing, Pasquale Ferry from Spain on Doctor Strange, Carlos Magno, who killed it on the Kang the Unconquered series uh, from Brazil, Cafu and Julius Ota, bo uh, both of them on Venom. Cafu is from Spain. Ota is from Brazil. Juan Ferreira is from Argentina. He's on Spine Tingling Spider-Man. Jan Bazaldua from Mexico on Red Goblin. Manuel Garcia from Spain doing X-Men Days of Future Past. Diogenes Neves from uh, Brazil on Realm of X. Geraldo Borges from Brazil on Storm. Marcelo Ferreira, Moon Knight, City of the Dead from Brazil, Salvador Espin uh, from Spain on Star Wars Dark Droids, Carlos Gomez is from Spain, Perry Perez is from Spain, Jesus Saiz is from Spain, Javier Fernandez is from Spain, and come on, if you were there for, for House of X and Powers of Ten, you got Pepe Larraz from Spain, Arbe Silva, RB Silva from Brazil, with color art, Keeping It All Together by Marty Garcia, who was from Mexico. And that's not even me mentioning Phil Jimenez, who everybody went nuts over the Wonder Woman issue that he did for Historia, and he won an Eisner, Vanessa Del Rey, Ariel Diaz. I could go on and on and on. That's amazing to me. That is entirely amazing to me. I feel quite proud of that. I can remember way back 
Sal, Abenanti, Uncle Sal on the CGS, uh, you know, on all those uh, popular CGS episodes, mentioned that the big two would often headhunt into other countries because they had, first of all, artists that were cheaper. Yes, I do know that. But also because the pay rate probably translates differently into other countries, right? So maybe they are cheaper, but for them, they might actually be making more than if they worked in the comic book community of their own countries. And, you know, a lot of these comic artists, before they want to move on to their own stuff, they always want to work on Batman, Wolverine, X-Men, Superman, whatever, you know? Um, So... I totally understand this is not a new thing, you know, whether it's the British invasion for writers, whether it's the Filipino invasion for artists for Marvel in the 70s. Um, I understand that creators come from all different pockets, but to have that wide of a scope on all these major titles, you know, your comic book artwork is coming from a vast majority of a certain demographic, which, again, I love. So, um, you know, and they're pulling from all different kinds of inspirations. Yes, they are pulling from comic book art, but they're also pulling from art that they studied. You know, when you read the biographies of some of these and and they talk about how they went to these really famous art schools or art communities, I mean, they are learning their craft And you're getting their sensibilities in these comics. So let's hope that they are also being paid accordingly (laughs) for the amount of successful work that is coming out of their studios. So there's your Vibology for this Thursday. Oh yeah! Feedback! Feedback Friday, mid-month edition. So as I mentioned in the Wednesday segment, uh, I was going to talk a little bit more about World's Finest Teen Titans uh, in this Friday segment. Really, I'm going to talk about World's Finest in general, this this brand that Mark Wade has created. I, I really wish they would make it into a brand at DC Comics, starting with Batman Superman World's Finest, the title that Mark Waid is doing with Dan Mora and Travis Moore and company, and now we have World's Finest Teen Titans with Emma Lupicino on artwork, and it's an exploration of the, the Teen Titans prior to New Teen Titans, and it's just this... Um, I call it a brand because uh, it's evoking a different era from DC Comics than what is going on in current continuity. So I must have talked about World's Finest Teen Titans number one when it hit stands a few weeks back. And uh, I made a reference that this entire World's Finest brand to me feels like Mark Wade is reimagining the Bronze Age of DC Comics, which you can say, you know, people say that the Bronze Age starts uh, around 1970, or at least the early 70s. Some people look at Conan the Barbarian, number one, as being the start of the Bronze Age. Um, You can look at it in terms of DC, somewhere in either the early 70s, mid 70s, leading up to uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. So that's a wide, you know, that's a wide um, 
group of years. But for me, it really does feel like reading early 80s Bronze Age comics when I was first getting into comics. It has that same energy. It has that same flavor. Um, the way I come to these comics, um, that that's what I feel. And then when I was talking about World's Finest Teen Titans, because of the makeup of the group, and you have the original Fab Five plus Bumblebee plus other people, that feels like Bronze Age Teen Titans to me as well. So I got an email from Murray Fox, who writes in a bunch of times, um, uh, always sharing his thoughts with, with the show, which is great. And I'll read his email. He says, when you were reviewing the first issue of World's Finest Teen Titans, you commented on how you felt that Wade was channeling the Bronze Age Titans more than the Silver Age. After reading the second issue, I'm going to push back on that a little. This second issue felt like a story that would feel very much at home in the run of stories that closed out the Teen Titans original run from the early 30s through to the end. 1969-ish to 1972. To me, those stories almost transition the team from Silver Age to Bronze Age. Murray continues, I guess it depends on when you feel the Silver Age ended for the Titans. Was it the departure of Bob Haney, Flasheroo, Wonder Chick, and all the groovy phrases? Was the introduction of Wonder Girl's red jumpsuit when the team left the Silver Age? even though that was pretty early in the series. In my own head, I think of Bronze Age Titans as being the team that came back after the first series was canceled, the book became more superhero-y, and less about helping kids in trouble. We got supervillains and colorful costumes and stories that were about the fights and the powers. I think Wade and Lupacino are doing a great job updating the flavor and tone of those late 60s stories while still being its own thing. I totally support a longer run for this miniseries or another World's Finest series that focuses on some other part of the DCU. The challengers of the unknown are waiting for some kind of revival. I definitely agree with that last part that we need more World's Finest. In fact, I think World's Finest DC Universe is a great title. Like, let them just go bonkers and... Let them do story arcs of, you know, the first four issues, Doom Patrol, the second four issues, Metal Men, two issues of Challengers of the Unknown, etc., etc., etc. So I responded to Murray in an email, um, because this is an email that was back in August 10th. Um, uh, so I'm going to read the parts of the email, and then I'll expand a little bit more here. I love this back and forth that Murray and I are having on this series, because it makes me have to back up, you know, what I'm saying, and I did some research, and... Uh, you know, I, I wanted to throw out some points here because my main argument has been people have been talking about World's Finest, the Batman Superman title, and constantly saying Silver Age, Silver Age. Although, as I was doing more research, digging into some reviews and some articles, I have been seeing more and more people saying that it's it, it has more of a Bronze Age feel, which is great. Um, so my response to this about the World's Finest Teen Titans title First of all, I haven't read it yet, um, so, you know, I, I can't speak to what Murray is saying, but it sounds like, uh, you know, I'm probably going to have the same experience. I am not super well-versed on the Volume 1 Teen Titans from the 60s into the 70s. I, I don't have many of those titles um, in me, you know, uh, and I think for me... 
because of the world's finest branding and because of the makeup of the Teen Titans, that you have the Fab Five, but you have Bumblebee and Mal Duncan, you know, that to me feels, and and Wonder Girl in her red jumpsuit, you know, some of the points that Murray was making. That is probably why I did sort of just go, okay, it feels Bronze Age. A lot of it, again, was coming from my feelings of reading a bunch of the issues from the Batman Superman title and uh, without having read the world's finest Teen Titans, just looking at the makeup and going, okay, you can't have these cast of characters and still call it Silver Age. Plus, I don't exactly know when the Teen Titans book takes place, if it's concurrent with Batman Superman or does it take place a few years earlier? Because Dick Grayson in Batman Superman, Mark Wade has said, is around 16 or 17 years old. I mean, he's just a year or two shy away from creating the new Teen Titans. So uh, that to me speaks uh, very much Bronze Age. So that was some of those points were my response about um, the makeup of the group and and uh the main Batman Superman title evoking that era. And then I made the point that what this really feels like, this whole world's finest branding, it feels like I'm reading DC during the new DC, there's no stopping us now era, which was that whole early 80s feel, this new energy that DC was creating. A lot of it was spearheaded by Dick Giordano and Jeanette Kahn. We're out of the 80s. New, new Teen Titans has a huge is a huge success, Legion of Superheroes, and then eventually Batman and the Outsiders and others. And there were all these slogans. And the one that I remember the most is New DC, There's No Stopping Us Now. And then there were other ones like even earlier, DC, where the action is. The new DC is on the move. Then we got the new DC, There's No Stopping Us Now. A little bit later, we got Where Legends Live. And while Batman and Superman is playing with a lot of what I think of um, certain DC characters as like science superheroes, things like Doom Patrol and Metal Men, you know, a lot of those characters were born of the Silver Age and and <laughs> disappeared in the Bronze Age, right? They never quite made it to the 80s, at least in not their purest forms. Um, the energy, those slogans, that's what leaps into my mind uh, when I read Batman Superman and when I look at that Teen Titans makeup. Now, when it comes to Teen Titans, I did find a little snippet from an interview with Mark Wade, where they ask him, you've got the classic lineup, you've added Bumblebee, what was it about bringing her into the ensemble that appealed to you? Mark Wade says, it was a conscious effort to bleed into the Bronze Age era of the book. Mal Duncan is also in the book, not as a superhero yet, but we'll see him in the second issue. Some of it was that the Bronze Age needed to be represented. Some of it was that our editor uh, is such a huge fan of that era of the Titans that I dare not oppose her. To be honest, some of it is that without her, without Bumblebee, you've got five white kids running around and there's room for some representation in this book. Now that's not Wade's admitting that that's what he's doing, but you know he's cert- the, the the rationale behind it makes sense. Uh, Murray had a follow up. 
and said, viewing Wade's World's Finest as being new DC, there's no stopping us, stopping us now, is an interesting point of view. That doesn't jump out to me immediately, but I can see where you're coming from. I definitely see it as Silver Age story uh, stories as told through a modern lens. The choice of characters, the approach to the characters, all of those things are very, very Silver Age to me. Metamorpho, the Doom Patrol, the Teen Titans, the Metal Men, there again. Metamorpho is a, another classic uh, science superhero. Um, he continues, it's like they've been pulled right from the 60s and given a 2023 shine. If we see the Outsiders or Firestorm show up, or Wade does a time travel story that includes the All-Star Squadron or sends Superman and Batman into Skartaris, then I'll feel as if it's the 80s. To me, I'll be interested in hearing what you think, think of Wade's Teen Titans. I suspect that you're going to love it. Yeah, I mean, you know, initial impulse uh without actually having read either of the titles my my gut feeling is uh, is i'm gonna like world's finest teen titans more than the titans by tom taylor but we'll see uh to which i say to that last little bit of correspondence for murray be careful famous last words murray firestorm was in world's finest he was in issue four he was in issue 16 as drawn by Dan Mora. He looked great. In fact, I get the feeling that a lot of the characters that Wade's playing with, he's playing with the satellite era of the Justice League. You know, you got Firestorm, you got Red Tornado in a costume, the, the, the costume that we're most used to that he received in 1974, right? Um, you can even go back to Dan Mora's version of Supergirl in World's Finest. He, his costume design is the costume that she received in Daring New Adventures of Supergirl issue 13 from 1983, right? So that's what I mean about evoking that um, era of comics from late 70s to the crisis that just has a certain feel to it. And, and really, you know, I sort of say that a lot of the reasons why people are saying that it's Silver Age is, is because of what Murray said and because of what I'm saying. They're using characters from the Silver Age. But I don't think that's enough. You know, I think there's more to it. And um, if we look at some more quotes that Wade has, he said he was told that, um, you know, he wanted this comic. I think what it, they, they came to him and says, we want a comic to be told in the not too distant past so that they didn't have to worry about continuity. And that's something that Wade is perfect for right now, whether he came up with that idea with them, but they approached him to do a series like this. By the way, apparently he had been working with Dan Mora on a Shazam title while he was doing all this, if not even before. And I think in his mind, I think the Shazam title was probably the thing he really wanted to do, and then this other title came into play. But anyway, um, one of the things that Wade says, both in written interviews and in uh, some YouTube interviews that I saw, is that we have that one bit of description in the not-too-distant past, but then he's also very clear that he wants to use characters in their proto versions or classic versions that those are his words so when you give me that description all i can think of is the dc style guide by jose luis garcia lopez right 
you look at that, Dan Mora looks at that and and goes, all right, I want these characters, I want these characters, I want that design, I want that design, I want to evoke this, you know. Um, but Mark Wade, because of his love of the Silver Age, is also, yes, going to go back and use all those characters. It's also why when Hal Jordan shows up, he doesn't quite, he has the sleeveless version of his tunic rather than the one, the green that goes over his tunic. Um, but you still have, uh, whether he's telling, whether he's riffing on stories being told in the Silver Age, um, and there's certainly some wackiness that, that you can see from these stories, right? It's not totally illogical, right? Those Silver Age stories sometimes, you know, you throw logic out the window and things come up at the end of the story that you would never be able to guess, you know, Wade is much smarter than that, obviously, but the energy for me, you know, when it really was about superheroes and relationships, um, Wade talks about New Teen Titans number eight the day in the life of the new teen titans and how that was a revolutionary comic where nobody was in superhero costumes and they were just talking to each other and it was about relationships like this notion of relationships is a big thing for wade um that to me also feels very bronze age one of the larger points i came away with now uh having researched a bunch of this stuff is wade likes to talk about combinations first of all Batman Superman is a team-up book. World's Finest is a team-up book, Superman and Batman. Um, they merged together to form a new composite Superman with Green Lantern at one point. Uh, you had the mashup of the Metal Man and Batman. Batman has a sidekick. Superman has Supergirl, right? Because Robin is featured heavily in the Batman Superman series. And then you get Supergirl, but then Superman gets a sidekick known as Boy Thunder. So again, combinations, counterpart, counterparts, uh, combinations to the point that I feel like you could, it might be Silver Age um, inspired, but it has the Bronze Age excitement. It's it's really all the worlds coming together. It's 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 a whole era of DC that Wade is able to pull from. And as I mentioned before, I want him to do more because then he can really dip into very specific eras. Um, but to me, the whole not too distant, distant past, the classic versions of the characters, ultimately what I came to this whole combination idea is that Wade is really, this is all a substitute for Earth One DC Comics characters, situations, stories, um, revisiting how Superman and Batman met, the idea that Superman and Batman don't exactly know each other's rogues gallery just yet. It's got pre-crisis love all over it. It's got Earth One all over it. And in many ways, it's like a new, true Earth One branding. World's Finest means Earth One to me now. A moment in time, a moment in DC's time, prior to the crisis, this purity, right? This, again, DC style guide, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, all the the, the characters that showed up on, on bed sheets and, you know, merchandising and toys, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's that, right? It's Earth Garcia Lopez. It's Earth One. Or it's the Earth One that could have existed after the crisis 
and and you would have minor changes in their history but they still are the classic proto versions it's like the time trapper plucked them out right before 1985 put them in a pocket universe to live forever and mark wade and dan mora and company are now uh playing in that sandbox to which i say if that's how i have to describe the world's finest era now there you go that is that is my golden age uh of reading comics uh, pre-crisis DC when I started and that is what it feels like Mark Wade is doing and that is a wide um, library for him to choose from and Murray you're right there should be world's finest metal men there should be world's finest challengers of the unknown world's finest the 1970s world's finest DC universe like uh, you know Wade said he wants to be on the book until he dies and and that's a gruesome thought considering we're losing creators left and right however um if that's what he wants to do and he gets amazing artists to do it with him i will be there i will pick up those books i will be a happy reader Woo-hoo. so thank you murray thank you for uh, allowing me to dig deeper into those thoughts i think that's great and uh you know Murray and I have very similar uh, reading upbringings, I think, you know, and and I can see why this uh, appeals to both of us. So if you want to email me, peter at thedailyrios.com, go visit the Daily Rios website and Instagram. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Yes, I am still on Twitter. I've gotten invitations to Blue Sky. Thank you to everybody who's um, sent that, sent or, or asked me if I wanted to go to Blue Sky, my response has been, I don't have the energy to start another platform. Not now. I'm catching up on things. I'm trying to cross off my to-do list and and um, trying to stay semi-active on the social media that I have is enough. <laughs> so when Twitter truly crashes and burns, uh, then you know I'll make the change. Uh, Send me your book club recommendations. I will be recording the next book club episode at the end of September. Can't wait for that. Send me your promo. Send me uh, your audio talkback clips. Uh, I want to give a huge, huge shout out to a gentleman who has been making donations to the Daily Rio since March uh, and has been a CGS listener since it was in the teens. Wow. I know there are a bunch of you out there that have been listening all these many years, um, which is just amazing. Um, I'm, I believe this person, you know, wants to remain anonymous, um, but they have uh, emailed and said, you know, they enjoy the theater talk, they enjoy the random topics that I throw out, crisis tapes. Um, so, you know, truly, thank you, thank you, thank you for that continuing donation, which has been really great. Um And hopefully I've been doing my due diligence to continue creating content that appeals to that person. So amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, All right, that's it. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 631 for Saturday, August 19th, 2023. Talk to you soon. Why? Why? (laughs) You don't call. You don't write. How else am I supposed to get your attention?